Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And in this episode, my guest is the acclaimed author, journalist and broadcaster, Tim Marshall. For nearly 25 years, Tim broadcast from over 30 countries and covered 12 wars for Sky News. In the world of journalism, there's something unique about foreign affairs correspondents. They stand out amongst journalists as a breed of their own. I think it's the events that they have to cover that just allows them to grasp the big picture. And when you're explaining war, conflict and diplomacy to your audience, you have to reduce complex issues to understandable stories. That's why I've always admired Tim Marshall. His book, Prisoners of Geography, Our World Explained in 12 Simple Maps, was a bestseller on at least two continents. The sequel to his book, The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the World's Future, is out this week. I recently spoke to him about it for this week's Persons of Interest. As our conversation took us on a canter through the world, I found myself in awe of his wisdom. He's one of those journalists who reminds us that journalism is still a noble profession. Tim, it is a genuine honour to talk to you today. I'm really grateful for you giving me your time. We're going to talk about your book because it's majestic. But first of all, I want to ask you a question I've been asking a lot of people I've been talking to lately. Given that you've spent most of your career in at least 40 other countries in really kinetic areas, how are you coping with lockdown three? Better than you might think. Um, and, and thank you for that nice introduction. I don't want to be too saintly because I have a very tarnished halo, but you know, I've got a garden. I've got a house, I've got some workspace, and I spend these days uh, most of my time sitting at a desk writing anyway. So I really have had it much easier. But the last three months, it's dragging. And put against the horror of what has happened, you know, I'm aware that this is a minor infringement on my life, but to me, it's a big thing. I'm a home and away season ticket holder at Leeds United. Honestly, not being able to, you know, do a 400 mile trip in a day on a regular basis. That's been the hardest thing for me. <laughs> yeah, well, as a Yorkshireman from South Yorkshire, I won't mention Leeds United, but I do know many Leeds United fans and I know what you're going through. So, uh, look, it's great for your time this morning. And Thank you. We're talking about your new book, The Power of Geography, which I think is, you can tell the wisdom of 30 years of foreign affairs reporting in it. It's a tour de force and... It builds on your previous book. Do you just want to tell me what sits behind you wanting to write this new one? And then I'm going to go straight into some of the things you put in it. Thanks. It's, um, you know, it's five years since I wrote this book, Prisoners of Geography, which, to my surprise and pleasure, took off quite considerably. And I started writing a new book. I've written a couple since then. I started writing a new book about 15, 16 months ago about gold and its impact on the world and its history. And, you know, it is an interesting subject. But after about three months, I was bored. I thought, I just, my heart's not in it. And I, I junked it because I realised that, you know, I was still more interested in the broad brush geopolitics. And then I realised that I had covered off the big, big players in the previous book, Russia, China, USA, the continents. But that what had happened in the next five years was an acceleration of an existing trend, which is the splintering of the world the breakdown of, of the big groupings, or the weakening at the very least, let's say, of NATO or the EU and others. And 
I realise that there's another book in this where I look at some of the smaller powers and how they are playing their role in what is not just the post-Cold War world, but the multipolar world. Because in the multipolar world, there's an awful lot of people jostling for attention. And so I look at some of those players. See, that's what really interests me, because I guess I remember, like most people in their 50s, the Berlin Wall come down Mm. and that bipolar world of East and West, Mm. capitalism versus communism. And at the time, people said, you know, there will still be a bipolar world, but it will be northern and southern hemispheres. But it didn't work out like that, did it? In the book, you say, you know, we had a period where there was a unipolar world where the USA dominated but now we're in a state of flux. And that's why I think this book is so significant, because you actually really focus down on, you know, Iran and Saudi in the Middle East and, you know, the role of Australia as the sort of connector between two oceans. And you talk about space. But the other thing you take me from the book, I'm a former digital minister. Mm. You remind me that geography is still utterly the most important factor. There's us talking about the commanding heights of the digital economy, the role of Silicon Valley, can we do currency exchanges in post-Brexit Britain? But there's a fact in there where you remind us that there are 8 billion people in the world who haven't got access to the net. And that isn't going to change very much, is it? You're right. I mean, you were kind enough to say, you know, the wisdom in this book, and, and thank you. I am aware that I am still a journalist, you know, not a sort of professorial expert. And so I do do the broad brush. But even as a non-expert and as a relatively young reporter back in the early 90s, I remember thinking, hang on a minute, what is all this, you know, lands of milk and honey flowing just because the Cold War's finished? As if, as Francis Fukuyama had it, that it was the end of history. And he wasn't taken out of context, (laughs) as his supporters tried to say. The idea that, that there will ever be one ideology which captures everybody, which in this case was supposed to be open democracies, is is just a nonsense. It doesn't take into account humans. And the second thing, of course, is geography. And you put those two things together. I mean, I I remember going to Afghanistan uh, shortly after uh, 9-11, and I took two books with me. One was Francis Fukuyama's End of History, and the other one was The Clash of Civilizations by Huntingdon. And this isn't because I want the world to be this way, but even at the time, especially being in Afghanistan, I thought to myself, only one of these two books is relevant, and it's Huntingdon. (laughs) It's this hard world. It doesn't have to always be. There is something magnificent about humanity. There are so many positive things, but I don't let intellectual thought get in the way of reality. And I do think some people do. And uh, Sorry. Oh, I should say, Tom, that being a digital minister is a hell of a responsibility. You know, I am not unaware of the utter necessity of uh, digital in, t- in the 20th century and how if you don't embrace it, you get left behind. But I just do think there is a whole generation of people that look at things like digital and then they fly over these vast expanses and they're still only thinking digital. And as you said, they're not thinking that down there, there are the rest of the 8 billion of us where geography is vital to most of the things we do. Yeah. And the other thing you sort of allude to in the book, just because of those struggles, I mean, I, I remember way back when reading Headley Bull, The Anarchical Society, where he essentially says there's no such thing as ethics at an international level, there are only interests. Do you subscribe to that view? I mean, uh, the new role for the Russians and all of that? No. Well, I think that's... I understand that sentiment. And in fact, um, I forget the great British politician uh, who said, you know, Britain has allies, but it has interests, and the allies come and go, but the interests are eternal. There's another one that American presidents come and go, but American interests remain the same. I do subscribe to that. But what I do think has changed in the past probably 70 years, 80 years, since World War Two is a genuine embracing of internationalism, not in a sense that you no longer necessarily believe in the nation state, but there has been a real embrace of the concept of the oneness of humanity, the responsibility to others. Now, you know, it's in the Bible, isn't it? Am I my brother's keeper? To which the answer is yes. But I think that we've embraced that much more globally than perhaps ever before in our history. And at this point, street cleaning comes past the window, for which thank you very much, but we'll be gone in a minute. (laughs) 
hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So that's interesting you talk about internationalism because, um, you know, when I was digital minister, I I remember talking to a data analyst who made the case that climate change could be reversed, that our weather destiny was still in our hands. And I said, how have you got to do it? He said, all you've got to do is plant a billion trees and you'll take the carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the ground. And it always sat with me, particularly as we move to a sort of world where there are more sort of populist, dare I say, sort of totalitarian leading mm-hmm. leaders in China, in Russia, Erdogan in Turkey, formerly Trump in the States. And, you know, the hard edge realism of international politics is it's going to be very hard to make human rights cases to them. It's going to be very hard to make sort of economic fairness arguments to them. But you might be able to persuade them to plant a billion trees and save humanity. What do you think of that sort of notion? Is that possible that there could be collaboration at an international level on these grand projects to save the planet? Yes, and I think there already are. And I think Paris Climate Agreement shows that. And even though the Americans under Trump didn't join, it has done under Biden. But also the individual American states did join. But also, if you look at China... It is a dictatorship and it is also a huge polluter, but at the same time it does understand and get the ideas behind what will happen to us if we don't change, and they are trying to change. So I think absolutely there can still be uh, global cooperation in various things, including in healthcare. But going back to the previous point, I'm afraid there does come a point where the national interest will always trump what is perhaps the right thing to do. And one example, slightly to one side for most of us, though, is the Kurds. You can make an extraordinarily strong case that there should be a Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got these millions of people, ethnically, uh, to an extent linguistically, culturally the same people who want one country but there is no way in hell that the national interest of Iran will allow a bit of it to be carved off ditto Turkey ditto Syria ditto Iraq it's just completely never going to happen because the four nation states their interests will trump it so yeah I'm afraid there are always these national limits to cooperation it's a great example of the Kurds because I always think if the western powers post Iraq owe any people a debt of gratitude. Mm. It's the Kurds and we, we let yeah. them go. I remember saying on the Andrew Neil show about four years ago when, when we first started using them as boots on the ground uh, in Raqqa in Syria, I said, yeah, we, we are going to use them as the cannon fodder foot soldiers to do the job while we bomb from the air. And then when it comes to payback time, we will throw them under the bus. And that's exactly what we have done because the greater interests of the various players... So, I mean, that, that, this is a, sorry, it's a bit of a bleak view of the world. I always keep in mind the fact that actually things for most of us around the world are better than they ever, ever have been. But, you know, I'm just not blind to 20,000 years of human history, basically. Yeah, I mean, you can't be with your job. And actually, just jumping into the book, Turkey is one of the chapters you've got mm. in the book, talking to the Kurds. And your conclusion is that Erdogan, is taking Turkey eastwards. You know, if Fatatürk sort of leaned west, yeah. Erdogan's taking the country eastwards. And tell me a little bit about the significance of that for, you know, particularly us in Europe. Well, firstly, it's partly our fault. We have never truly really encouraged Turkey to come into the family of European nations. On the other hand, I understand that they have never met the human rights standards or the economic standards, but we never really invited them in. 
And so naturally they have turned away. It might have happened anyway under a different leader, but it was certainly going to happen under what, what is... He's both a nationalist and an Islamist. And so he looks, well, where can I project power? And you're going to come into some serious opposition when you project power into Europe. But what what is doable? Well, what is doable is, is invading Iraq and establishing a foothold there to keep various Kurds at bay. You then invade parts of Syria, because you can, and it used to be part of your territory anyway. You send troops all the way to Libya, because you can. You get involved in your near abroad in the Armenian-Azerbaijan conflict last year, and you become the power player there. This is all doable, and it's all eastwards. He fancies himself not only as a sultan, but also he would love to be the leader of the Islamic world. Mm. Now, you run into the problems of him not being an Arab in, in that respect, but that doesn't mean he doesn't fancy himself as that. And whereas Ataturk embraced the idea of making Turkey a modern country and connecting it to Europe, he does not see it that way at all. And you've seen the drift from NATO. I find it impossible they'll be in the EU now. Their foreign policy increasingly looks eastwards and into the Turkomen culture of the uh, Central European countries. And if it continues in this direction, they will no longer be a member of NATO. And that's pretty fundamental. We're years away from that, but that is the direction of travel and it has been for a decade. Sorry, and as I'll come to the point of the question finally... Yeah, Europe, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but just the last few days, the European Union has agreed another deal, which I regard basically as a bribe. We gave them six billion euros a few years ago to stem the flow of the migrants and refugees, and they are hosting three and a half million people. I mean, they have done an amazing job, humanitarian job, the Turks. But the six billion euros did cause them to turn the flow off, We've always known they can turn it back on whenever they want, and uh, we have just paid them more money. So if that relationship breaks down, if it comes to conflict with Greece over various issues at that point, the fences can be opened and the boats can be allowed to leave, and we can be back where we were in the crisis of 2015-2016. It's really interesting you talk about that deal, because actually, you know, it's the case has been made to me that actually Erdogan is a political project with migrants being welcomed to Turkey, and that, you know, he's deliberately population building, grateful migrants starting, you know, a new life and loyal to him, which helps him, you know, it's still a democracy, there's still elections, he's building a political base amongst migrants, have I got that wrong, or is that the people that are making that case? No, you haven't, you haven't got that wrong, I don't agree with that take, um, if so, why is he busy desperately trying to ship back tens of thousands into Syria? When they went into Syria for the third time last year, they took about 300 villages, and these villages are now, some of them use the Turkish lira, and they're learning Turkish in schools, and they're shipping back as many as they can to populate them. They're not necessarily from those areas. A lot of them were Kurdish villages. So I don't buy that. Why, in that case, every now and again, do Turkish officials open the fence and usher migrants through? I don't buy it. His electoral success is because it is the poor, less educated people that have flocked in from the countryside of Anatolia into the big cities and changed the demographic in the big cities away from modern liberals that you traditionally found, uh, notably in Istanbul. And the demographic in Istanbul is increasingly now working class conservative. And that's his natural base. So no, I don't buy it. You've also reminded me of, a. I think Turkey's possibly the best example I have of the people with sharp elbows in the multipolar world who have seen there is this window where they can act whilst tension is elsewhere. Let's face it, America's attention has been elsewhere for years now. Because I do also argue that it's probable we're going back to a Cold War, this time with China, and you will be forced to make choices. Most countries will be forced to make choices in on many occasions. For example, Tom, you, you, you started this by, you started it by saying, um, you know, you're a child that remembers the Berlin Wall coming down. Therefore, you're also old enough to remember that there was a time 
join the Cold War, it would be inconceivable for Turkey to be behaving the way it is at the moment. Yeah. Inconceivable that Turkey would buy Russia's S-400 missile defence system. It just would not happen. But in the multipolar world, that's the sort of thing you can start doing as you push out. But it's a limited amount of time before when the crunch comes and it's back to a Cold War, then hard choices will be made. Britain and Huawei's phone system is a good example. Which side are you on? I'm going to get to that in a minute, but when we talk about migrant movements and migrant politics, really, there's a great piece in the book where, I mean, you must be one of the few people focusing on the Sahal, and you talk about how climate change, how instability, how corrupt administrations may mean that migrant movements are going to impact on the politics of the EU, because that's where, I mean, very little attention is paid into this region of the world, isn't it? Yeah, and the Europeans were initially partly responsible for all this, because of colonialism. But, you know, you can't pin the whole blame on colonialism. There have been decades of misrule ever since, based often on ethnicity. Into this vacuum comes Al-Qaeda and ISIS right across the Sahel, which is nearly 3,000 kilometres long from coast to coast. I bet you if you asked a 1,000 people on the high street today if they knew that there were hundreds of British troops fighting in the Sahel, maybe three would know. We have no idea that the light dragoons are down there with their reconnaissance vehicles traversing across Mali looking for ISIS and Al-Qaeda. We have no idea that there's three Chinook helicopters and RAF staff helping out the 6,000 French troops. And yet this is our near abroad. Now if these states implode, and it is not impossible you know, if Afghanistan and Syria can implode and Libya, well, why not Mali, Burkina Faso and others, even less likely, but even Nigeria, just below the Sahel. If that happens, a number of things happen. I mean, the basis of it is that there's more misery for human beings. But strategically, looking at it geopolitically, what then happens is that X percentage of them move north into North Africa, further destabilise North Africa. They keep going, as do more people from North Africa, and they start heading across to Spain, Greece, Italy, other European countries via Turkey, any which way they can. And the levels of movement now rise even higher. That further impacts on the politics of the European countries. It is undeniable that the migrant and refugee crisis has not impacted on it, had an impact on Brexit, has an impact on the voting patterns in Italy and France. So it is in our interest to keep an eye on what's going down there. Then there's a whole argument about whether we actually commit forces. The French have committed 6,000. They want a lot more of us. And the government so far has said, we're a bit busy at the moment. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we're a bit busy cutting the infantry, but there, that's another story. <laughs> I won't be a politician anymore. We'll be a politician, eh, Tom? <laughs> I mean, that's a bleak picture, Tim, but actually on your chapter on Ethiopia, you're a little bit more optimistic about the future of Ethiopia as a regional power. There's a potential for the political classes and the business classes to align to sort of build what we would call, a, you know, the nearest thing to a stable state that perhaps Africa has other than South Africa. Yeah, and as, as you'll know as a politician, it's the economy, stupid. You just, I can never get past that. I can never get past that if you don't get the economics right, nothing else is really going to go right. Because if you get the economics right, there's more stuff to share around. That, and if you share it equitably, there's less reason to argue with each other. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. You know, when we used to live in caves, we worked this much out. So... On Ethiopia, colonialism didn't play a role, but what the Ethiopians did was create their own sort of empire because it's there's nine major ethnic groups tied together in the borders of the state. They speak different languages, they're different religions, different cultures, they haven't got motorways connecting them to each other. They, you know, they are very different people connected as all being Ethiopians. This has had huge problems. You see it again this year with the civil war in Tigray, the Tigray region. It's only 6% of the country. Somehow they actually controlled the whole country in the 1990s. But the one thing that can change their economy is water. They are the water tower of Africa. They're building the uh, Renaissance Dam. It has the potential probability to create free electricity for every single house in Ethiopia. That increases productivity. It also means you no longer need to burn firewood. 
no longer need to chop down the trees, but we're back to your one billion trees now. That's better for climate change. So a whole bunch of things flow from that water flowing. And it's doable if the politicians can get the economy and share it all out correctly. They can hold Ethiopia together and it can be a successful modern nation. Now, the downside is if they don't, they'll all continue to fight each other and kill each other in large numbers. And I don't know if you saw it, but just yesterday the talks broke down. Sudan, Ethiopia and Egypt are involved in talks about how to share the water because Ethiopia will have its hand on the tap. No water, no Nile in Egypt, no Egypt. And Sisi, the president of Egypt, said again what you might regard as not a helpful suggestion. He said if one drop of water is taken from Egypt's share, all options are on the table. And you know what that means, which wasn't helpful. But, you know, those are the stakes that they're playing for. But again, it goes back to sharing. You're a socialist, Tom. You know all about that. Yeah, sharing was hard, even when I was deputy leader of the Labour Party, though. You're right. It's hard in the playground. Some of us never grow up. (laughs) Needs a good human spirit. Okay, you've hinted at the Russians. I mean, you talk about your time in 91 when, you know, Russia started to assert itself post-Cold War. And, you know, in the book, you talk about the Obama administration over two terms and Trump withdrawing their expression of interest in the Middle East and the gaps being filled by the Russians. Where is Putin's Russia in all of this new settlement in our multipolar world? Pretty much everywhere, which is why Obama should never have said, uh, in a deliberate snub to Russia after they interfered in in an an election, um, they're just a regional power. Perhaps they were at the time, but why poke the bear? unnecessarily. You're going to have to poke the bear necessarily sometimes. Don't poke it unnecessarily. For me, 1999 in Kosovo was the low or high water mark, where after the 10 years of Yeltsin, when they were on their knees, at that point, because it was Putin who probably strong-armed Yeltsin into intervening in Kosovo at the very last moment as NATO's troops came in, that was the moment they said, this far and no further. And they've been pushing back ever since. And what you see now in Russia, and and Ukraine and the Donbass is part of this, look up at the Baltic, you'll see they're really reinforcing in Kaliningrad, their exclave. Little short hop down to Belarus. They saved the president there last year. That's another part they're going to push back to keep the West away. Nip down to the Donbass. Now, they used to have the whole of Ukraine as a buffer zone. Now they just have the Donbass and they intend to keep it. There is a scenario that if they get everything right, they then move down to Mariupol, a port on the Sea of Azov, cut round, they've already got Crimea, cut round to Odessa, Russian-speaking port, and then up to Moldova, where they already have troops in Transnistria. And you've now got this whole arc that protects them in their near abroad. In the other direction, they're pushing out into the stands. Now, there China will win that battle, but they are trying to gain as much control as they can in the stands, all part of the former Russian empire known as the USSR. And then what Putin has also done, I argued for years that he wasn't just a tactician, he was a strategist, and I remain convinced of this. He sees in Syria the gap, the vacuum left, because the Americans simply were not interested in getting involved under Obama. And what he did was inserted Russia into Syria, secured their little port that they have at Tartus on the Mediterranean coast, got themselves a 50-year lease, new lease on an airbase up in northern Syria and made themselves a player back in the Middle East, whereas they weren't. But he's made them a player. He's also made them a player, again, in uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. I mean, this is part of the struggle with Turkey for who is the, the big boss of bosses in that part of the world. So I think they've played a blinder with a relatively weak hand and they have become, again, a global power. You know, they are not just upper Volga with rockets, as they used to be called. And I think it's down to Putin's strategy. Yeah, he gets stuff wrong. Everyone does, but they've played a blinder. It's really interesting you say that, because I agree with you on that. And Putin sort of famously said that the biggest disaster for the world was the breakup of the USSR. That's right. And he draws that parallel. Yeah, but Tom, not because he's a Marxist-Leninist, because he's a Russian nationalist. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But he saw the EU as a sort of parallel to the USSR. Yeah. And the breakup of the EU 
was a strategic goal, right? And he's busy working on it. I mean, ask yourself, why on earth have Sputnik, the Sputnik Russian news agency, opened an office in Edinburgh? Because all their listeners and viewers and readers are really interested in Scottish politics, are they? <laughs> Come on. So what you see it is, you know, classic Cold War propaganda, yeah. turbocharged by tech. And they're years ahead of us. They're so much better at it than we are. They're winning the war on it. Yeah, I agree with you there. And that's one of the big uncertainties about how far Putin will push, right? Yeah, yeah. Will he push troops into the Ukraine in the next few months, do you think? I mean, it's possible, isn't it? I'm just writing about this at the moment, actually, and you can't really out, but I don't see it. I don't see a major invasion of Ukraine because at the very least what would then happen is finally Angela Merkel would grow a spine when it comes to Russia and cancel Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 is crucial to Russia's strategy and it's going to make Germany dependent upon them. I mean I know the Americans are against it partly so they can make sure they sell their own liquefied natural gas to Germany. I mean mean, you know it's not just about strategy it's about American profits but Leaving that to one side, I just think that the opprobrium would be so high that these level of sanctions against them now would seem like a pinprick. Therefore, he can't risk it. But, you know, the little green men are still around and Russian soldiers who decided to go to the Donbass on holiday in 2014 might decide to go there again. You can't rule that sort of... I mean, I was trying to come up with a phrase in an article yesterday. It didn't work, but we need to go beyond plausible deniability to implausible plausible deniability because <laughs> Putin, Putin's stuff, is his plausible deniability is so implausible and yet it's still plausible deniability. So they're not out of the woods. It could go bang. It's very dangerous there at the moment, but I don't see a full-scale Russian invasion, no. OK. Obviously, the other place where... Putin's regime has taken itself is into the Middle East and you've got two chapters in the book on Saudi Arabia you look at Iran as well I mean there's two things happened in the last month that really fascinate me from a political point of view the the first is slightly left field which is the muon particle and the Fermi lab near Chicago has... <laughs> My <rocked>. brain's melting. <laughs> well, it's, it's rocked physics to the core, where there might be a new particle that... Only uh, if you understood iceberg. physics in the first place. <laughs> well, what it, what, what it might do is mean that we understand the universe a lot better by the end of this year, right. and all these attempts to colonise space, which is the last chapter in your book. But then the second point, which sort of went unnoticed, but I just think is amazing is that the United Arab Emirates launched a satellite that is orbiting the planet Mars. Mars, yeah. I mean, you want to look at global ambition from a nation that's less than 50 years old? They've got a satellite orbiting Mars, which is miraculous. And that whole region is in a state of change. You know, if you look at Trump's legacy... The one thing he gave was the Abraham Accord. He cut amazing corners that no administration, other administration would do. But Israel, now with a peace accord with the UAE, mm-hmm. on the course to a peace accord with Saudi Arabia, you know, the whole re- 70,000 Israeli citizens travelled to the UAE in December after that accord was signed to take holidays. If Saudi does that in the next 12 months, that's a game changer for the region, isn't it? We'll, we'll tell me a little yeah. bit about the chapter on Saudi. Yeah, it there. could happen. Yeah, I mean, and Bahrain as well, of course, has Bahrain, um, yeah. um, also come, come to terms, and Sudan. It's more difficult for Saudi because the deal in Saudi, you know, half of it is the House mm-hmm. of Saud, and then the religious side is supposed to be run by the, the Wahhabis, and many of them would not look kindly at this. So that's why I think they've been more reluctant. And the king himself is more reluctant. I'm confident that when the king passes on and the crown prince, I mean, who's the de facto leader anyway, when he comes to power, at that point, Saudi will come to terms with Israel. And that will be huge because the economic benefits to both of them will be huge. Israeli technology is something the Saudis need. They greened the desert and Saudis need to green their desert. Briefly going back to the UAE, yeah, they are amazing. When you were saying that, I was reminded of something I often think that how much most of us are often at least 10 years behind in our conception of a country. The stock example for me is Sweden. You know, we still think Volvo and ABBA and all the rest of it. And also we think of Sweden as this incredibly liberal society. We're stuck in the 1970s and 80s. 
Sweden has moved dramatically in its politics and its view of, yeah. of, of things, and, and it's a lot of it is to do with migration. What one in, what is it? I think it's one in four people in Sweden now were not born there, and it's had a huge impact on the politics. But uh, sorry, but just reminded me of the UAE. You know, UAE, oh yeah, that's Dubai, that's where you go for a long weekend. No, that's a major player in the Middle East and increasingly a major player across the Red Sea and the Horn of Africa. They've got a military that is kitted out to the top end, which is trying to influence things like Eritrea, Ethiopia, Libya. Yeah, they're players. Saudi, also, we think of them just in terms of oil, but they are a huge player. And I don't know if it'll be this year, Tom, but I do think that when the Crown Prince is properly in charge, that's when it'll happen. And you talk about Saudi, in the last paragraph in the book, you say the Saudi leadership has to build a new society, a new economy and a functioning military. You know, it sounds to me like you're optimistic about changes that may be made. I mean, Saudi's obviously the dominant player in that region. I know optimism and pessimism are sort of border you can cross easily when you're into foreign affairs, but tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, I'm actually optimistic about most things in the long run, you know, because I'm very aware that every generation says that the sky is falling and every generation says, oh, it wasn't like that. Well, of course it wasn't, but, you know, go and live in the 15th century and have toothache if you think (laughs) things are getting worse. Um, They have incredible sovereign wealth fund which they can draw on to subsidize the change that has to come they're going to not only run out of oil eventually but we are going to run out of the want to use it oil i think will go before gas and oil is the the bigger of the two for them and they know this which is why they've got vision 2030 which is why they're trying to completely rearrange the economy solar panels they've got the right type of sunshine they're trying to encourage tourism. They're investing in Tesla. They're building this brand new city, Neom, out in the desert. They're doing all sorts of things to diversify because they know their current system is not sustainable. So they're absolutely acting on the economy. But the second bit of that is the society. When you've got 12 million foreign workers in a population of 22 million Saudis, and they're doing all these jobs, well, you're going to have to persuade the Saudis to do the Saudification of, of the workforce. Whereas not that many Saudis want to be, as I say, mending fishing nets at the dockside in Jeddah, which is what the Bangladeshis tend to do in Jeddah. Many of them, not all of them. Some of them are highly educated, working in banks. So they're going to have to change their society as well, where young men think it's a perfectly normal thing to do, that their job is to mend fishing nets or drive taxis or do all the other things that the foreigners do at the moment. It is also not sustainable to continue with the religious social restrictions on this increasingly young society. So you have to manage that. And then you have to start slowly drawing away the subsidies. One of the biggest ones, for example, is water. Here you are, farmers. Here's a load of water, even though we haven't got very much. You can have it for free, allowing you to grow your crops cheaply and sell them abroad. Well, if you can't grow them cheaply, you need to sell them at higher price. You know, it's very, very complicated. So they have to change their society. And the last bit is, if you get the society and the economy wrong, you won't have the money and the wherewithal to create the military that you will require if you still fear Iran, as they do, rightly or wrongly. You know, it doesn't matter whether I agree or not that Iran is or isn't a threat. You know, that's not really the point. The point is it is regarded as one. Uh, Well, if the Americans are not going to come to your aid, you better be able to protect yourself. That requires a top-class military. That requires an economy that requires change. That's why they're changing. Fascinating. Let's do Iran and tell me whether you do think they're a threat to Saudi or not, because they've obviously got, they're still state-sponsored terrorism in my view. They've got a corridor through Syria, through Beirut. They're influencing affairs in Palestine. Yeah. I remember going to Gaza once, Tom, just a few years ago. We're driving down one of the streets and I looked up and there was the Iranian news agency building with a big sign. Oh, I was quite surprised because I was obviously out of touch and didn't realise that they were in Gaza. You know, this strongly Hamas, Sunni Muslim area. Uh, yeah, they're playing everywhere. OK, I mean, I'm I'm now free to voice an opinion. I never used to. Uh, I tried not to when I was a reporter. I didn't think it was my place. I'm free to do so. Yes, I do think they're a threat to Saudi Arabia because 
One, they have designs on uh, increasing their power. They remain revolutionaries. They are less inclined to export their revolution. I mean, you know, Lenin was reasonably happy to try and export a bit and then Stalin thought, let's concentrate on home. They've gone through a similar process, but they still do play as... And in the eastern provinces of Saudi Arabia, the majority of the population there is Shia Muslim. Given that they are ill-treated, many of them often by the Saudi state, why wouldn't they look sympathetically to their Shia brothers just across the water in Iran? Many of them do. That gives Iran the possibility to take a foothold and influence which is what they're doing. Same in Yemen with the Houthis. So I do think they are a threat. They also aspire, and this has been clear since 1979 and, and Ayatollah Khomeini, to be the leader of global Islam. Now that's a big ask when you're a Shia, when they are the minority. Nevertheless, they have been incredibly influential right around the globe in Islam in general, not just with Shia Islam. You know, they have inspired people through their fatwa, uh, fatwas against people like Salman Rushdie. They have inspired radical people around the world with their blood-curdling threats to uh, Jews and, and Israel. So I do think they are, they are not a force for good in the world. The Ayatollahs... This is the thing about so many intellectuals. When people say mad, crazy, violent, vicious things, intellectuals tend to think they don't mean it. I don't know why they think that. It's probably because they're really nice people and they would never think those things themselves. And so obviously these people don't mean... No, they mean it. They mean all the stuff they say. And they mean if they get a chance to carry it out. So um, watch this space in Iran. There will be more uprisings against the Ayatollahs. They're not just chanting... Well, it's not just now students in the middle classes chanting about the system of the Ayatollahs. It's now increasingly the working class, not just chanting about bread prices, but chanting about, will you get out of Gaza and will you get out of Syria and concentrate on us? You know, yeah. this is a very familiar story. People romanticise many different cultures as if they're all sort of yearning for some great uh, idea. No, they want the bread prices down and their kids not to get killed in Syria. All politics is local. Yeah. You've got a line in the book which I found chilling. You, you describe the religious revolutionaries. You say that to them, compromise is sin, to resist yeah. is divine. How on earth does President Biden reach an accommodation with people who have that kind of zeal? Um, by letting them continue to rule. Because more important than anything is that the revolution at home must stay in place and if he says i'm not coming after you i'm not threatening you there's a deal to be done if he's talking about regime change they will fight tooth and claw they are revolutionaries they do believe in their revolution they do believe they're doing god's work on this earth that god's plan is not just islam for the world but it's shia their version of shia islam but within that they are also of course states men they are also military leaders and they are also nationalists. And so, you know, there's room there. But you mustn't say you're going to change the regime. That's when people will dig their heels in. So tell them, we're not going to come after you. We will lift the sanctions, but you need to do X, Y and Z. We're going to see if the X, the Y or the Z are sticking points. For example, if the Americans put their foot down and insist on UN weapons inspectors going into actually into the nuclear processing plants. Would Iranian pride allow that? Well, we'd have to see. But the deal is there to be done. Both sides are edging towards it. It'll take at least the rest of this year. But yeah, there's a deal there to be done. They're mad, but they're not crazy. Or the other way around. <laughs> All of that. Deals to be done. That's interesting. Okay. Before I bring you back home to the UK, I've got to go as far away as possible and take you into space. Because the final chapter of your book is about politics of space. You know, for the first time in the last decade, capitalism has an interest in outer space. With, yeah. You talk about Bezos and Elon Musk. We now have a multiplicity of sort of space actors. We've got people who want to colonise the moon. And you even suggest that there's the chance of mineral extraction by the end of this decade mm. uh, on mm. the moon. 
Tell me how that affects foreign affairs and international relations, because it's absolutely fascinating. I learned a lot researching this, but I found it a very useful starting point to look at it as if you're just looking at another geopolitical territory, because then a lot of things fall into place. And the best analogy was the choke points of the world, you know, the Suez Canal. We've seen how important that is recently. Seven billion dollars cost in one week's blockage. The others, the Strait of Hormuz, Malacca, um, Gibraltar, etc. And when you look at space, it's the same. There's the belts around the world. If you control the one that controls the satellites, you control the satellites, you control all movement on Earth. You can see it, rather, and communications. If you control the bits where, in probably a few years' time, you'll be able to refuel, you essentially would control who could go into space and explore, because getting out of the atmosphere is the real fuel burner. If you can then refuel just in low space, you can go a very long way. But if you can control that ring, you can either refuse people access to it, or you can say, we want a cut of whatever profits you're going to make, including Bezos and Musk. I mean, they wouldn't be able to militarily control that. So all that stuff is now f literally floating around. And then you've got the geopolitics of it, that people realise this, and you have the danger of a, a space arms race. The Russians have already it would appear, tested a, sat a killer satellite. You know, it's straight out of an Austin Powers James Bond film. It's you know, <laughs> about like little doors open, little laser gun, fires at another satellite, boom. It's already happened. And once someone has done that, someone else is going to do it. And once someone has got a big satellite that's the most important thing for their entire economy up there, they better have another one next to it to protect it. And then that someone else, but et cetera, et cetera. And you get into this race, which is where we might be heading if we have this Westphalian concept of space and not this going out there together, which is, would be preferable. Ditto the moon. The Artemis Accords have already been signed, but not by the Russians and Chinese, where they have... They've said it openly. There will be spheres of interest on the moon. That's yours, that's yours, that's yours, that's mine. And we all agree you can't come into it. Well, the Russians never signed that. Where's the legality of this? And as I think I say in the book, what happens if they suddenly plop their spaceship down next to the Japanese one and get the spades out and start digging? What are the Japanese going to do about it? So therefore, you're going to go up there with a protection force. And it, on it goes. The way to do this is to go out there as one people and it's a work in progress <laughs> <laughs> i love it okay i've got to take you back before we finish because i could be with you forever let me take you to the uk and this is how you describe the country that we're talking in now another nation that lost its empire the uk a group of chilly islands at the western end of northern european plain is still looking for its role after Brexit, it may find one as a middle-ranking European power forging political and economic ties around the world, but the challenges it faces are internal as well as external as it grapples with the prospect of an independent Scotland. If I was Boris Johnson, I'd be sending you stroppy letters right in that, but I agree with your analysis. Tell me about the role of the UK post-Brexit. I thought that was rather optimistic. <laughs> Fly me. I mean, we... We've got a chance. We're well-placed geographically for the world trade lanes. We're very incredibly well-placed to trade with that huge market right opposite us, the European Union. But as I said, if we get the politics right. Yeah. We still have, I think it's three of the top ten universities in the world and a universally admired education, higher education system. For better or worse and right or wrong, a place on the permanent five of the Security Council. For better or worse, right or wrong, nuclear weapons. I think we're still sixth biggest economy in the world. And a long history of innovation. You put it all together and we can really make a fist of doing it alone, if you like. And I'm not getting, you know, this isn't about whether Brexit was right or wrong. Brexit is. So that's what it is. What are we going to do? We've got a good chance. A lot of it based on our, on our history and geography. The big challenge is, though, our purchasing power vis-a-vis -vis the major players, the India, China, USA, EU. But Japan is doing okay with a go alone. There are various things that may come to pass, including this D10 idea, group of 10 democracies, or the D20, however many you want to put in it. There's the Five Eyes, the intelligence gathering community that could come together very loosely. 
apparently we even could join um, the, the Asia-Pacific um, trade deal. You know, there's all sorts of things that could happen that means we don't necessarily, that decline is not inevitable. It is possible if we get things wrong. But some people seem to approach this as it's baked in that we're going to fail. I think we've been here before. In the 70s, you know, we were on our knees and we're never, ever going to recover. I'm slightly older than you, Tom, and I remember in the 70s with Carter. Apparently this was the end of America. It was all over. <laughs> and then along came Reagan and boom time. Yeah. Your own um, former leader, Mr Blair, came along and it was boom time for Britain in the 90s, etc., etc. It is not baked in. It's all there to be won and to be achieved. And Britain is so much better placed than so many other countries. And if Japan can still be a space-faring nation, which it is, a major economic power, a major technological power, a major military power, why on earth can't Britain do something similar? I, I actually think we're quite well placed. If we get the politics right, I think the rest of it will happen. Yeah. Oh, I didn't say about Scotland. Sorry, Tom. I do worry that the effect of uh, Scotland leaving the UK would be possibly greater than um, the UK leaving the EU. But, you know, that's up to them. You know, we're a democracy. Yeah, OK. Tim, I can't disagree with a word you've said of that. It's been a genuine pleasure talking to you. Your book, The Power of Geography, is a distilled wisdom of, you know, someone who's visited 40 countries and has seen the world. I recommend it to everyone. Genuinely, thanks for your time. And I wish you all the best in the future. Same to you, Tom. And seriously, it's a terrific to be invited on. And thank you very much. Well, that was Tim Marshall. I love the fact that Tim's wanderlust does not stop him religiously following his beloved Leeds United. And more importantly, that all that war, all those diplomatic rows he covered, has not made him cynical. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producer is Lucy Pullman. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 